Hello, everyone. So after our break, we're now back with the first episode of season two of The Forest of Thought. And in this season, we'll continue our forays into the ecology of ideas, trying to re-examine the familiar and catch glimpses of the new. And the plan is to release a new episode every three or four weeks. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can become a Patreon community member and pledge to give a donation every time we release an episode. And any donation, big or small, is much appreciated. So visit forestofthought.com for more information on that. Let's get into today's episode. Welcome to the Forest of Thought with me, Ingrid Reeser. When we as communities or as a society are faced with challenges, we often call on science to provide us with the best course of action. We strive to make evidence-based decisions. But what assumptions are hiding behind this recipe for decision-making? And how can taking control of a situation reduce our capacity for responding with care? With us today to explore these questions is Professor of Science and Technology Policy, Andy Sterling. Evidence is absolutely crucial and science is absolutely essential, but it's necessary, not sufficient. And to treat it as being sufficient, not only does that undermine the robustness of our decisions, it undermines democracy, and it actually undermines science itself because it forces on science and scientists a load they cannot bear to pretend that it can deliver everything that's needed for decisions and that forces science to lie and the worst thing it can possibly do is lie and I'm afraid it's pushed increasingly in our times now into lying routinely about its own sufficiency. Andy Sterling is Professor of Science and Technology Policy at the University of Sussex. He co-directs the STEP Centre, which looks at social, technological and environmental pathways to sustainability. Andy's research focuses on understanding science and technology in relation to issues of power, uncertainty, and diversity. I spoke to Andy on a very sunny spring afternoon from my home outside of Uppsala, Sweden. Andy was in his house, which lies at the bottom of a hill in a small town in Sussex, England. If you listen carefully, you can hear sparrows chirping outside his window. I thought maybe where I wanted to start was um, that I was reading your I was reading your um, bio on on the the university website, and I was pretty impressed because you went from in the beginning studying astrophysics and then moving into archaeology and social anthropology, and then you've worked as a lot of different things, among others, a healthcare worker ecology and peace activist, and then now you've been in academia since the 90s, looking at um, the politics of science, technology, and innovation. So I was wondering if you maybe you wanted to say something about what it was that brought you from thinking about the, these fundamental, you know, the fundamental science of the universe to now, today, commenting on the role that science and te technology play in our lives. Can you say something about that? Sure, yeah. Um, I mean, thanks for introducing it that way, Ingrid. But um, 
I mean, it, as one friend once pointed out, all the things I did, archaeology, astrophysics and uh, anthropology, all, all begin with A. So I, I just missed out accountancy in the first part of the prospectus. So, um, it wasn't that uh, high flown. But um, you, start, you started in the alphabetical order yeah, of, uh, of I, studies. <laughs> that's as far as I got. But, um, uh, but I did miss out accountancy. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I, I guess... I, what got me I, I've always been really actually fascinated by science and and just how amazing for instance in a field like astrophysics what it can the exquisite pictures it can give you of the of the cosmos we're in and I, I was I've always had that but at the same time in my more recent work people often think of me as a critic of science but I'm not at all I'm absolutely fascinated and celebratory and try to be faithful to what it is that's special about science but what got me shifting back then was the elegance of a field like astrophysics, which doesn't, the experiments or observations, they, they tread lightly on the earth, quite literally, because the, mm. everything they know, they know through observation, rather than manipulation and trying to control. And that, even though I hadn't formulated that way, that I think that got to me at an early stage. But then I kind of overshot thinking about the other side of the knowledge telescope, how it's not just what you're looking at, it's how you look. And I got radicalised by a field called Science Studies in Edinburgh, where it was. And that, you know, if you want to understand knowledge, you need to look as much at the observer as what is observed. They're both important. You know, you can't understand the content of knowledge without that. And that blew my mind. And I overshot in social anthropology, um, thinking about other ways, you know, other ways of being rational in other other societies. Look at the world. The, the pluriverse in so many different ways. So that's a little potted account there. But then I, I found none of them were really giving concrete, grounded basis for action at the time as I was younger than I guess. And so I went off into the environmental and uh, disarmament campaigning world for a while before I came back. So for me, it's actually, although it looks quite disparate, it's actually, and underneath it all, the final thing, like in archeology span as well, I've always been kind of fascinated, like a loose tooth wiggling it all the time. What, what is progress? You know, whether it's progress in knowledge or progress in, in, in human values, progress in um, society in some way, technology, what, what does it mean? And that's been a kind of red thread throughout what I've tried to, to do. Mm, yeah, wow, there's, there's so many things there that I hope we'll, we can touch back upon in the conversation. Um, what sort of prompted me to, to get in touch with you now? I mean, we've, our paths have crossed um, briefly before, but it's um, something that's been coming up a lot, I feel, lately, is this role that science plays in our societies, and especially in how we make decisions, especially in very uncertain times. So I think that at this point, it's almost a trope to say that we're living in a time of a converging crises, people like to say. So, you know, it's the, the climate crisis, we have um, deteriorating ecologies. We have the pandemic, obviously, perhaps this looming economic crisis. Some say we have a mental health crisis. So uh, lots of crises. And of course, there's ostensibly lots of different ideas about how we best respond to those, those challenges. But I feel that something we continuously hear from all sides of this debate is that whichever solutions or responses we choose, then they need to be evidence-based and we need to listen to the science uh, when it comes to to meeting these challenges and i think our initial response to that is well of course that that makes sense we need evidence to to make good decisions 
But then I've been thinking, you know, it's this kind of um, self-evident truth that we're interested in investigating more on this podcast and looking at, well, what is it that's hidden beneath that kind of statement of listening to the science and making evidence-based decisions? Could we start there? Could you say something about that? Yeah, I mean, these are really important questions. I can't claim to have bottomed them out, but I def definitely like wrestling with them as well. And uh, so on the first part of what you said, Ingrid, leading in around the interlocking crises, it's worth that principle I said, when, you, when, when, when reflecting on knowledge of any kind of area, reflect as much on the subject as the object. So, for instance, look at other societies that have had crises. Look at most societies that existed in the world uh, in the last few hundred years have had massive crises engendered, for instance, by colon colonialism. And those crises were interlocking. They were all crises interlock. When you're in crisis, they all interlock. Uh, so, for instance, you know, and the environment was being, by settler colonialism, people in those places saw their environments collapsing. They were encroached on with incredible violence. And there was disease, typically, as well. So, you know, really apocalyptic, much more so than is immediately the case, at least in, in uh, comfortable Western societies now. So I think there's a danger that the sense of inter interlocking crises is a sort of almost like a kind of arrogant exceptionalism that our society gets into, that we've got the best crises of anyone. You know, we, we haven't. Mm -hmm. And it's in the nature of when, when, you, when, a, when, when a subject is in crisis, everything looks like crisis. So yeah. I only say that not to diminish it, because I think, you know, it is a huge, these crises are hugely important. Some of them, like poverty and injustice and war, gets ridiculously yeah. sidelined and we obsess about others. But nonetheless, they're all, but we shouldn't get paralysed. And the more we get the sense of crises on every front, the more there's a danger yeah. that people, the progressive forces in society get paralysed by their own storytelling. And that worries me. Um, so that, yeah. that's just a long-winded <laughs> sort of reaction to the, multiple crises thing um yeah and and then the other thing though about evidence then i mean the basic point for me i don't know what you think is evidence is absolutely crucial and science is absolutely essential but it's necessary not sufficient we get and and it's almost we have this it's almost a part of that crisis kind of mentality the more we load on crisis on crisis and crisis the more hysterical we get and the more we forget the difference between necessity and sufficiency so something, you know, no matter how important our needs are, something that is not sufficient will remain not sufficient. Science is not sufficient. It's essential, but not sufficient. And, and to treat it as being sufficient, not only does that undermine the robustness of our decisions, it undermines democracy and it actually undermines science itself because it forces on science and scientists a load they cannot bear, forces it to become alive, to pretend that it can deliver everything that's needed for decisions, that science can somehow deliver it. And that forces science to lie. And the worst thing it can possibly do is lie. And I'm afraid it's pushed increasingly in our times now into lying routinely about its own sufficiency. So why, why, is, that, uh, why is that dynamic happening? Why is it that scientists are sort of forced to uh, take on this responsibility? So it could be climate scientists that are, you know, looking at uh, whether patterns that are supposed to tell us um, how we should restructure societies or something like that uh, or 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 other things so why what is that dynamic in that case well i think it's really i mean science is about being as rigorous and careful as we can be 
about our understandings, to be really uh, robust about what we can say about things. And so that's where I start. So I then say, well, OK, when we're looking at the role of science, we're talking about the role of knowledge and in, in decision making, in politics, in society. And when we do that, we absolutely have to look with really clear eyes at the way power works inside knowledge. Right. Just because we feel the decisions are urgent and just because we have enormous respect for science does not mean we should become romantic and delusional sometimes about, for instance, the idea that power is absent from inside science. There are many powerful forces that operate on the kinds of things, the content of science. So for instance, just to remote from some of the fields we might discuss, but in biotechnology, it's essential that in order to exercise intellectual property, patents, on pharmaceuticals, on all new organisms, that attention be fixated on the gene. And that political economy forces bioscience as a whole to come up with stories all the time, exaggerating the importance of the gene and downplaying the importance of systems in, in cells, in organisms, that in, 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 uh, uh, in, in ecologies that qualify how important the gene is. Genes are very important, but they don't drive it. But we need to tell stories about that in order to be able to exercise intellectual property. So that's a little micro example of how political economic interests in the world shape the science. Because, uh, so because the gene can, uh, can be patented, which is interesting in itself, the gene can be patented, but the organism within which the gene is working cannot be patented, patented. And so then the the combination between the economics and the science leads to the overemphasis on genes. Is that what you said? That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So you can you can you can patent a you can patent a category, you cannot patent a relation, basically. And so we have to see the world in that categorized. And then of course, you know, the small the more specific the category, the better that is. So it's just so I'm, it's just an example of how the challenge for science is not just speaking truth to power, which is crucial, like on something like climate change. It's also seeing how power shapes truth, including the truth that the science wants to speak. And okay. you, you can see this in so many areas of science where we just airbrush out. We just treat it as if power is not present in science. And when we do that, we're being unscientific and we're putting ourselves in danger of being misled. I also saw that you wrote somewhere that metrics can can sort of be used to to give you any answer that you want really yeah. what do you yeah. what do you mean by that yeah. and that, doesn't that sort of well, go against this the whole idea of science yeah well you know as i try to say i'm i'm somebody who enormously respects science i've also been an environmentalist and a campaigner a lot of my life so i really feel motivated to make use of science as well in in the interests of being persuasive so you know, I really understand those dynamics, but and actually, to be honest, in the beginning, I was quite taken aback when I started doing research in the 90s on the results obtained in the energy sector from risk assessments, from life cycle assessments, from energy input output assessments, carbon intensity assessments, all these kinds of grand quantitative technique, which, you know, now form the basis for this evidence based policy uh, platform. And I didn't find a single area 
and it's true not only in energy, but later I realized in, in chemicals, in, in bio, bio risks, I didn't find a single area where if you look at a particular committee or a particular report, you find very nice, precise answers telling mm. you a story that something is better than the other things. Mm. But if you go to the literature cited in those studies and look at the peer-reviewed literature, you find enormous uncertainties and variabilities in the evidence they've interpreted, mm. which are typically so large that across the choice of different policy options, you can justify any ranking order you like. Mm. And what's happened is that there are so many fr framing assumptions. You know, when you get a number out of an, anal an analysis, mm. that that is only possible by making assumptions, hundreds of assumptions, typically. So let's give a concrete example. If you're asking what's the carbon intensity of gas compared to wind? Or, um, so the carbon intensity of gas comes mainly from the, um, the fuel that goes through it. Mm. So if, if you draw your boundaries around the facility, the energy production facility, mm. then you get one kind of answer. If you, but if you then ask, for instance, like, well, the wind power station is typically made of concrete and steel and often very deep foundations in the ocean. So where does the concrete and steel come from? Mm. and then you then move back into the economy, mm. you get a different picture mm. um, because that steel and concrete has required energy. So if you move out then from the, even beyond that, from the factories and the um, distribution systems that went into making the concrete and the steel production, mm. you then measure only the average carbon intensity of the whole economy. So you've got a dilemma. You don't want to measure the average intensity of the economy as a whole. You don't want to measure the carbon intensity just of that point in space where the power station is located. And there's no obvious answer where you draw the line between. And where you draw that line gives you a different answer to mm. that question, how much carbon. And just one other example, it's quicker to say, mm. is, for instance, nuclear power is something I'm very critical about. Mm. Nuclear proponents say it's zero carbon. Other people point to enrichment and mining and say it's not zero carbon because it's using energy for mining and enrichment. And that's carbon intensive. But if we were moving to a nuclear economy, the energy that was used by the nuclear wouldn't be carbon intensive. So there's a built-in assumption about whether we take the starting point as our baseline or take where we're going to as our baseline. And you get a different answer from that. So these are just two examples of hundreds of assumptions that end up giving you different answers. And although, you know, what I'm trying to say is these numbers never come without their associated stories, but we always detach them and treat them as definitive and precise. And we forget that each one has a story behind it, which could be contestable. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting because we, we think of, I think that we often think of scientific knowledge, of course, especially within the, the natural sciences as uh, a kind of uh, objective and detached and decontextualized knowledge when actually it is the result of all of these uh, people making choices uh, about what it is we're going to look at. And like you said, where are the system boundaries? And uh, often, of course, biased towards looking at things that are easily measurable uh, as opposed to things that are, are more difficult to sort of grapple with. 
But so absolutely. So f first of all, it makes you wonder. Well, you know, is there? Uh, it's very easy to see how people interpret then that as well. There's no point in in listening to to science because you can just make the assumptions that you want and yeah, yeah, uh, it's yeah. it's all relative and and uh, there's no yeah. truth to anything yeah. anyway and uh, yeah. it's uh, it's all it's all vested interests and etc cetera, etc cetera. so th yes. and that's not that's not right either no. uh, so that, how do we navigate that yeah it's it, it i mean i think it is something is going on that's very worrying in order to address that question, which I think is a single most important question, because it's so important to avoid <laughs> this whole post-truth authoritarian populism denial of these problems that science is pointing to. So it's really key. So for me, one key plank in realizing how this isn't a problem is looking back at science when it began. Science was and is a social movement. It, it, it was a movement to resist the authority of the monarchies. And in, in the European context, science is developed in many guises around the world. But just picking, for instance, I'm from England, you're from Sweden, you know, the European context. Mm. The, the motto of the British Royal Society in the 17th century, and it was typical through different countries, was nullius in verba. Their motto was not on authority. Mm. Science was about resistance to people claiming undue authority in the way they asserted knowledge in that case the church or the monarchy and science said no it's about argument and then you have these values of science about communitarianism sharing data arguing irrespective of whether you're important or not you should be able to argue the point everyone can resort to evidence not only the privileged elite you know of course science has got all kinds of you know injustices in it but those are the values that it tries to aspire to hmm. which are about challenging authority so now in the world we see especially in, inter in environmental regimes for instance science being invoked as an authority mm. so now the motto on the royal society is um investing in excellence <laughs> that's very interesting which, that's very telling which is the opposite it? the opposite over 300 years mm. so it's and of course this happens it's when you only see this when you look at the subject of knowledge as well as the object so science is becoming authoritarian and i think that is the main driver of this apparent science denial because actually mm. either science itself or people who want to use science are claiming too much and they're provoking a backlash so we then get hysterical and try and dig in even more mm. and you know especially and and then that provokes even worse it's like a it's like a mental illness it it brings <laughs> on the even worse reaction because science can't deliver so uh, that's but in the end, it's common sense. If there's some, you know, the classic thing is the elephant in the room. Okay, so imagine mm. a real elephant in the room. Mm. It's perfectly common sense that what if you didn't know what an elephant looked like, you'd be shocked by how different it looks from the back, from the front, from underneath, from mm. over the top. What you see from those angles is very different. The mm. elephant's definitely there. So it's not relativism. There's an elephant there. Mm. But what that elephant looks like is different from different angles. So, of course, when we look at a a science policy issue from different angles, it mm. looks different. Yeah. We shouldn't try and force it to always look the same mm. because that's the nature of things. They look different from different angles. Yeah, and I think that that's... Um, I, I think about something, for example, uh, that you see a lot of people who are... Uh, who could be called uh, climate change deniers saying, well, you know, we know that climate change isn't a real thing because it's being used by these 
powerful people and vested interests in order to drive through their agenda. And it, yep. it's it's so obvious that it's it's just um, a ploy for for yes. them. And so, yeah. and I, I think that you know, obviously, I think I think that the more correct answer is that yes, it is being used by um, powerful institutions and vested interests in, in order to drive through a certain agenda. And it, and it's also a real uh, issue. But, but it is interesting how, how quickly the scientific sort of facts of we have an increased uh, concentration of CO2 and greenhouse gases in the air how quickly when you start to try to look at well what is how is that going to affect the the environment and then how will it affect people's lives etc cetera, etc cetera, how quickly it gets to be very obviously very political and and very attached to certain stories about what is possible and not possible as well Absolutely. So I'm thinking about how yeah. how one navigates. Yeah. Well, I, that. <laughs> I, I I think the basic trap that climate uh, action advocacy or a lot of it has fallen into, which leads to that conundrum you're talking about, is it has pretended that somehow science is beyond human. Mm. That, you know, and indeed that scientists, you know, listen, have a scientist and to tell you what to do. Not even science as a whole. And mm. And what that means is it becomes extremely, it's incredibly apolitical. I mean, when environmentalism that I first engaged with saw very clearly on nuclear issues, on toxic issues, on waste issues, on conservation issues, fisheries, environmentalism saw how science was being used, how science had power in it, how it was essential but flawed. Mm. And it, it grew up as an, a movement challenging those flaws in academic science, in government science, in business science, and using its own science. Whereas somehow on climate, it's become completely credulous. It's lost all its critical faculties. Mm. And it simply seems to think like, you know, as a banner says, do what the science says. Mm. And that's actually, I, I don't want to put it too strong, but I think that's a betrayal mm. of environmentalism. It's, and it's incredibly naive. And what it's done also is made the cause weaker because all the opponents have to do is show that scientists are not human, mm. publish someone's emails, no matter how trivial the emails are, they show that the scientists are human and they burst the bubble or of the IPCC, you know, as a whole, you have to just all you have to do is show that there are, in fact, politics operating. Of course, there are mm. within it. Mm. And because the environmental side has made such a play about the authority of science, it has become weak mm. because you just need to show, no, it's not a godlike transcendent authority. It's got flaws. Whereas, as you say, quite rightly, I think. If it had said instead, of course, science is flawed, of course, science is political, of course, there are uncertainties. But you show me a process that's better at dealing with these uncertainties than the one of arguing out. So not denying the uncertainties or de deprecating them in some way, yeah. but just showing how science deals with them in ways that the Beltway kind of lobbyists never do. So I think that's a, a huge, unfortunate move made by in the last 20 years to, to make climate advocacy in particular vulnerable and it's same is true on on conservation i think so what would what would a different way of relating to uh this uh you know the official authoritative science uh climate change science that well mm -hmm. what i would be referring to there is like yeah for example the 
the IPCC reports or these kinds of things. So what would be an alternative, would you say, yeah. for for the yeah. climate movement? Well, <clears throat> there are layers within layers. Uh, so there's several mm. answers to that question. But the basic one, these kinds of issue are never about knowledge fundamentally as a, as a sole driver. Mm. They're about values. Mm. So make it about values first and foremost, mm. not do what do what science says, you know, we're, we're, we're killing the world, trying to make us very frightened of a catastrophe that knowledge is telling us about, but instead saying, we, we could be in a better world, Let, we want a better world, mm -hmm. a better world with more justice, a better world with more environmental flourishing, that's the world we want. Drive it by hope, not fear, mm -hmm. drive it by values, not assertions of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And incredible things happened in the first 30 years of environmentalism by that, and of course, so much climate activism does do that. It's not it's not being done, yeah. but it's oft, often it's asserted as if too often it's asserted as if science is the basic driver. I mean, another example of that is how built into even the word, the phrase climate change mm. is the idea that climate should be static. Right. Well, where did that come from? Mm. Cl climate is not static nor is, is it clear why it should be. Through the whole history of the Earth and all the wonderful, flourishing vibrancy of life, climate has been not only fluctuating, but massively fluctuating. Mm. That's inconvenient for a kind of society that happens to be the society that's causing the problems in the first place. Mm. So somehow we've gotten ourselves into a hysterical state where because we, with all our horrible injustices and vulnerabilities, are vulnerable, we have to treat the climate as something that has to be stable because mm. we, with the we being those privileged groups who benefit from these societies, want it to be stable. So this isn't an apology, apologia for accepting climate change. Absolutely not. We should be mm. reducing carbon to zero now. Mm. But it's why do we have to go into this fiction that somehow we're doing that because climate is naturally static? We should instead be saying we shouldn't be messing up the world with billions of tons of pollutants. Mm. We should stop that. We shouldn't be saying, modelling the earth and saying by 2100, we want to stabilise global climate, supposedly indefinitely. Mm. It's, it's a very weird discourse we've been led into, that mm. somehow we are the control force, which is what climate scientists have called us, mm. control force for the world. Yeah, because it's, 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 um, it feels like the the narrative is often, well, we, uh, things are now sort of, uh, spiraling out of control and it's very urgent and so we need to be uh, taking control of the situation and like you say there's people mm. talking about things like you know global uh, global control room for the climate like exactly these these words yeah. and, and I guess that yeah. you're question saying that well the climate is something that can be disrupted as we see that we have been been doing the last several hundred yeah. years but it's not something that actually can be controlled. Absolutely. What does it even mean? For you know, it's like a, it's like it's like a bacteria. It's like a bacteria in my gut. Yeah. <laughs> you know, claiming to be a control. You know, it's rhetoric. I mean, mm. what we're doing is providing You know, powerful institutions, hierarchical societies, stratified cultures, always need these stories, of to justify privilege. You know, stories of control. It, it's not, you know, going right back to Babylon and the, the astronomers of Babylon, you know, these stories of control mm. are required 
by hierarchies to justify injustice and privilege. Mm. The, that, the, the world is not controlled any more by scientists now than it was by Babylonian astrologers. Mm. It's not controlled. You know, if, if control means not influence or impact, but mm. like when you, when you ride a bicycle or a car, you know, you, there's a one-to-one -one correspondence. You do make a little move and the thing moves. You don't have other things happening. It's all like switching on a light switch, off or on. You know, it's very, we know what control is. It's a very familiar experience, mm. but it doesn't apply in the world. It doesn't apply to environments. It doesn't apply to societies. Um, and so these stories of control are so delusional mm. that um, they're, they're undermining, I think, a lot of the politics of, of a kind of movements like environmental movement that aren't about control at all. They're about care. You know, they're mm. about caring for the world, caring for each other, not trying to control each other. How do we get into a state where these progressive movements that used to be caring mm. are now controlling, which mm. is exactly what they used to be fighting against? Mm. Well, so well, what about the the pandemic? Would you, you say that that's the uh, example of how control is the only thing that works in in uh, crises? You know, we're gonna you know keep people in inside and and control, control people's movements and so on? Well, everything <laughs> I've been saying is not, it's not, I mean, as I just, in my example, I said control does exist. So it exists in interactions with machines when a machine is functioning, you know, so I'm not, first of all, I'm not denying there is such a thing. I'm just saying society as a whole and environments as a whole are not controllable. So now let's look at the pandemic. Yeah. Um, so yeah, not to diminish it, you know, mm. intervention with vaccines, intervention with testings, intervention with social distancing are control measures and they've played a role. But I, first of all, it's not over yet. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think, you know, it's an example of evidence-based discussion. We can look at the experience of the pandemic, each of us with different priorities and uh, fields of view, And I think it's difficult to deny that there are at least as many examples of where mutualism, like caring for each other. Mm. Uh, so, for instance, people's willingness to actually engage in the social distancing, mm. when it's actually authoritarian being told what to do, they don't respond very well at all. When mm. it's driven by a sense of mutualism and caring for our neighbors and caring for our, then, then we're driven by it. So there's mm. a, it's when it flips into a caring mode, it's more appealing. Yeah. So it's not one or the other. But I think mm. we've got the balance wrong. We emphasize control when control is just part of the mix and care, I think, from the experience of the pandemic, has been at least as important as control. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I and I sort of asked that question as a as a bit of a as a as a devil's advocate, as you maybe um, noticed, because I, I do think that we, we see that uh, control works on maybe some uh, on certain factors. Uh, so, for example, Uh, limiting people's ability to to move, travel between countries, or to even travel from their house, or, or and so on. It has certain immediate um, effects, but we don't really know so much about what the the long term effects are. And uh, and uh, and also one of the criticisms I've heard from some people is that we've been listening a lot to um, epidi ep ep <laughs> epidemiologists, epidemiologists, of course. Yeah. Um, but but also ignoring uh the scientific evidence from people who are maybe working with general health or mental health or sociology or yeah. economics or system thinkers and and um and so it's it's also interesting because we i feel like when we're faced with a lot of uncertainty uh one way to 
to, re to respond to that is, of course, to try to reduce the complexity of, of, of the situation through, through control measures and say, well, look, control works. <laughs> but you're actually, it's, it's, it seems to be working perhaps because you're, you're, uh, seem to be reducing some of the, uh, of the complexity of the situation or that you're just not, um, really looking at the results in, in a full way. You know, the, the thing about control is like with epidemiology, it is, you know, it is, it's no coincidence that it is epidemiology, as you say, that it, whether it be in the Swedish approach or mm. uh, the British approach, which it started out quite different, yeah. but epidemiology filled quite a, quite a key role in both. In the, in the Swedish approach, it was the basis for balancing economic and health uh, impacts. And in the British approach, it was to give precise numbers to just, you know, give the rules and obey the rules. And in both cases, it's no coincidence it's epidemiology because that was the one that expressed itself with the greatest hubris, the greatest mm. precision using numbers. Mm. And it's somehow that that sort of fairy dust of numbers. If some argument gets put in numbers and somebody's prepared to pretend at exquisite precision, mm. they'll find it much easier to win the argument. Yeah. Whereas someone else comes in with a picture with the, well, it depends on this and this is this is a scenario and that's a scenario. They don't. And, and this is not about who's telling the truth. It's about who's, whose story is most useful in policymaking. Hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I think, I think somewhere you wrote there that um, ultimately it's also about uh, policymakers and politicians who are making these decisions to feel like they have uh, something that they're basing their decisions on because it's going to be yeah. on them if it, the result yeah. is bad. So, you know... Yeah why and why wouldn't they they do that i mean what's the alternative for them yeah yeah absolutely i mean it is actually people like me uh, you know spend a lot of our time being critical of politicians or senior figures in business uh, and uh, and and government and i uh, have to say it's a it's a really difficult job mm -hmm. <laughs> to be to be in those positions and i don't say this as a way of defending these structures of privilege and so on it's just that we have to be open-eyed about how knowledge gets used in policymaking. It's really clear. I mean, goes back, people like Habermas in sociology, David Collingridge did a lot of stuff on this. It's a lot. It's no shortage of people, really, again and again, showing how the most important commodity in politics is justification. Hmm. In other words, the ability to get people off your back mm, okay yeah. you, you know and it doesn't it, you don't have to actually have a single-minded idea of what to do you know it doesn't mean you have to say i want to do x and i have to find the story that supports x it means mm. whatever you want to do x y or z you need a story otherwise someone is going to take you down yeah and so it, it's not saying that's a good thing i'm just saying we have to the more we care about issues like climate change or injustice, the more we should pay attention to how knowledge works in policymaking. Knowledge is not a source. Primarily, it's not there to tell the truth. Mm. It's there to provide justification. Mm. And quite often, when knowledge is doing its best at providing justification, it's not telling the truth. Mm. And the politicians don't mind because they, they need justification more mm. than they need truth. Mm. Yeah, and I guess that's why you can understand why a lot of people who are working in the the climate field, for example, or in um, or with issues of inequality or whatever it may be, are uh, drawn to providing the kind of uh, numbers or reports or whatever that are framed in this way, even if it's um, not the most accurate. 
So it is yes. also this thing where, you know, everybody may be acting with logically from their point of view and with good intentions, but the result may still be very bad. Um, but so yes. where do we, where yes. do we go with that? Yeah. Well, I, I think so. I mean, it's a little bit like, you know, I mentioned that science went through this cycle from an initially being a social movement that was challenging power and privilege it yeah. became asserting it likewise environmentalism it's a natural you know it's a natural the world is far more cyclical than it is made of straight lines yeah. and i think you know so it's not to sort of criticize either science or environmentalism for going through these cycles we just need to be open-eyed about it this is what happens the world is not a straight line it's a series of cycles and mm. and so yes of course the, the environmental movement became entangled and later embedded in political systems around the world it got the idea that when politicians said give me your elevator pitch you know give me mm -hmm. your one answer mm -hmm. that they they somehow felt they had to do that right. thinking that that was a way of getting their agenda forward when instead it was a way of providing the political interests mm -hmm. with what they wanted which was yeah. justification so so it, it's basically it's up to 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 us or to to people working um, in trying to change structures and trying to change um, the patterns of the world to to actually be brave enough to say, well, you know, this is a, a value-based question and yes. it is and it's complex and we need to be able to to give it the complexity the complexity that yes. it deserves. Exactly. So, yes, it, it, you know, value, I mean, depending, of course, on the political movement in question, the mm. progressive movements I, I associate with, because, you know, there's nothing about movements that make them good. There's plenty of movements, that, in my opinion, are really uh, very bad social movements. But all of them tend to know that you have, you know, have these dynamics of power when they start. And so, yeah, I think start with the values, start with caring for the world rather than controlling it. If you're progressive, caring for the environment, caring for other people mm. and that means being humble, having more humility about mm. about knowledge. Don't be forced into claiming you're controlling the knowledge because you want to con control the world. You know, you don't have to. If you're not wanting to control the world, you don't mm. need to pretend you've got totally precise, controlled knowledge. You can say, look, this is what I care about. What do you think? Mm. And it's amazing how less can be more, even when confronting very fiercely regressive forces. That kind of argument, as Gandhi, you know, Gandhi showed famously with the style of the movement against British colonialism, you know, it had that sort of humility to it. And there was nothing stronger. Uh, it was quite interesting what happens when the force of brutal sort of coloniality comes up against that more mutualistic, more humble demeanor, it doesn't know what to do. So yeah. it's, it's not like it's not about losing the argument. Exactly. Maybe you could say a little bit more about care, because you write a lot about this, the, the contrast between the the technocratic control as a way to to approach these issues as opposed to hmm. carrying struggle. So you already yes. said a, a bit about it, but. Yes, yes. Well, I think it's about, I mean, it's a bit of a, it's a technical word, but agency, you know, the, the, the property of making decisions, of having intentions. Mm -hmm. And what control does, it first of all assumes there is only one agent. You know, mm -hmm. there's a particular, because in order for something to be even imagined as controllable, you need to have the aim. Mm towards which you control mm. so even before you start simplifying the system you need to have simplify the values and say there's just one thing we want how do we get it mm. and we you know treat the world like a tool to get that thing so you're romanticizing agency you'll live in a world where there's only one agent and that's you mm. 
Mm. So what that does is we just tell ourselves fictions about the way, not only of the world, but of, of society. But again, it's, a, it's not as if it's a unfamiliar thing. That's what you do when you switch on a light, you know, the light mm. just sits there ready for you and you switch it on. So it's, it's not as if this is a philosophical point. That, mm. that notion of control is very concrete. Um, whereas care is, is also a really familiar experience. It's what, you know, when we, we're born into families and friends and the environments we live in, care is only possible when you recognise that the other things in the world have agency as well. Mm. Other people, the planet itself, other living beings, ecosystems have agency. Mm. You know, and we're a very eccentric society that's kind of forgotten that. Most societies <laughs> in different ways have, have seen that. The world has agency, have billions of different kinds of agents all, all around. And it's interesting how our society has somehow gotten itself into a state where you have to basically imagine yourself into a, a fiction that there's only one agent who has one aim and then everything else is instrumental about controlling. Mm. So I think that's where care differs. It's basically having the humility and the empathy to recognize other agencies in the world. Mm. And so what do you, and, and I think that, I think that a lot of people will, you know, instinctively really uh, resonate with that. And then I think there's another part of, of people who, for example, in relation to, to climate, which you've written quite a lot about, will, will feel this, okay, we see, um, there's a certain sense of urgency and yeah. um, say that you're working at a, you know, you're working at a, you know, a local municipality and you're, you're the environmental strategist or something like that. And, and you're thinking, what, what do I, what do I do <laughs> in this yeah. situation? And, and the questions that we start to ask ourselves at that point are, could, might be, well, you know, I need to look at um, what activities in my municipality are are emitting um, carbon dioxide, for example. No, no, I'm not saying that's a bad question to ask. I'm just saying that's that might be where we could start. Yeah. Um, but so, you know, where is it that we we quickly fall into this rut of, you know, over simplifying the problem in order to be able to to uh, handle it, and then providing a simple goal, decreasing carbon dioxide emissions, and then and then trying to control things to meet that end just like you were saying so where is it that we might ask either reframe the question or um think in different ways yeah well i mean there's so many there's lot again lots of layers to that and i don't pretend to have sort of <laughs> I'm not, you out, should but, tell uh, everyone what to do that's exactly what you're not saying but, oh, if yeah. you if that was saw, you that's, that's what that was, that was you yeah i saw that one coming Luckily, yeah i just headed it off just but um <laughs> But okay, but you know, just as an opinion, I, I think that uh, basically less is more. Mm. You know, where do we get the idea that the more intensely assertive and overbearing we are, mm. the more likely we are that other people will do what we want? Well, where do we get that idea from? Right from being a, a tiny child, you know, I, you mm. know, I want it now. That's what we mean. You don't get it. You know, some families different from others. But so also, I mean, I, I've I, I've been counting. Uh, the first time I saw five years to save the planet was 12 years ago. Right. <laughs> so what, what kind of credibility? Now, I know these debates are made in sincere ways and there's all kinds of different thinking behind it. Yeah. But what kind of credibility do we think? It's like these millenary and apocalyptic movements. You know, mm -hmm. what, what kind of political credibility, tactically, mm -hmm. do we think we're going to have when mm -hmm. we are repeatedly refuted in people's minds? Mm -hmm. So I think, and, and then there's also the... the 
the sort of then there's fear there's mm-hmm. this fear but fear-based where do we get the idea that progressive change if you look back at human society and look at we all have different ideas of this but you know the progressive values that environmentalism and climate uh, action is surely part of mm. uh so emancipation of uh, you know from colonialism from slavery of mm. workers of women insofar as these things have <laughs> happened mm. which mm. you know has been amazing in many in many ways although yeah. not finished what what do we learn from those stories were they fear-based do it now or we're gonna die mm. <laughs> no is we we're hoping for a better world mm. it's about hope values of hope has what what drives progressive change the only types of change i can see that are driven by fear are regressive ones mm. war fascism these are driven by fear mm. so where then did a progressive movement quite on top of all the other things we've talked about get the idea that fear is the way to win a progressive battle mm. it, it never has been and I, I really worry about that because i i fear that the kind of struggle that will this will turn into will be absolutely the wrong kind of struggle and will end up for instance to be concrete in the context of climate change we will drive ourselves into climate geoengineering yeah which is right there ready that the IPCC have built it into their models of negative emissions technologies. This isn't a philosophical point. Mm. It is already the case, if you believe these models for 2100, that it's unavoidable that we embark on climate geoengineering. In other words, human power structures making claim to control the world's climate. Mm. It's very scary. Yeah, and it's interesting because um, I think that a lot of climate... Uh, scientists would feel that just saying what they know about, you know, the state of the climate would make you scared. You know what I mean? It's like you don't even have to try to whip people into a frenzy. Just sort of saying what you found when you were looking at ice cores in the Arctic will will make you afraid. And so I think that that's something that I'm um, think a bit about as well, where you're you you also you don't want the aim to be fear, but you also want to be honest and not lie. (laughs) Because I think that that's the other thing that people do or climate scientists feel forced to do is to kind of package the message so that it will feel um, like we we can do this or it's, we have, we're, this is possible. I I think so. And you know, if, if, if what we're trying to do is, engender fear then you know it's not like the only fear we can engender from climate science is about the undoubted catastrophe of humans Mm. human you know of uh, emitting billions of tons of carbon into the atmosphere every year is is clearly catastrophic in terms of disruption to the climate it might Mm. cause but what 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 climate science also tells us is that there's there are episodic cycles of ice ages now Ice ages are pretty bad. <laughs> you yeah. know, they're pretty scary things. If an ice ages can come on very quick, mm. they can oscillate. They involve all kinds of oscillations. Mm. And in fact, you know, depending on what body of what evidence you look at, you know, we're due for 
ice, an ice age or would have been due for an ice mm. age not so long off. So, yeah, you can scare people. You can scare mm. people with extinctions of other kinds. You can scare people with, you know, sea level mm. rise from other causes, volcanism. Yeah. There's plenty of ways of scaring people. Uh, mm. But why would we want to do that? Why don't we mm. try and build hopeful societies that are striving towards what they want rather than thinking they have to be so fearful that they can't, they have to tolerate all, and I, I'm actually very suspicious of this yeah. prevalence of fear because it makes it makes it as if we should tolerate all kinds of other things because there's some bigger thing to fear. And of course, that's always been what war does. You know, people go to war in order to control their own populations. When when things are getting tricky, you know, authoritarian states go to war. And I mm -hmm. think the world, the globalized world, meta state, going to war in these ways, in ways that you just think, well, hang on a minute, well, it's, you know, whether it's war on drugs, war on terror, war on climate, yeah, wh why do we need all these wars? We need it so that there's an element of control can be exercised inside the societies. Yeah, I mean, I have to, I have to say that I, I, I do just agree with all of that. And, and I, I do feel that I'm a bit surprised by how people are very willing to, so for example, this, uh, this cry for um, climate emergency, for example, as well, which I totally understand where it, it, it comes from. And also people so readily, very happily pushing for these states of exception um, during the pandemic as well. And mm -hmm. I don't have to go into whether, you know, that's necessary or not, but just seeing how people react to it as it being a really, really good thing. It's interesting because you know, even if the situation is, is dire, putting ourselves into these states of exception uh, will, uh, of course, just provide the, the the states with more powers to do what it is already doing, which is not exactly uh, speaking truth to power or like it, it's so much part of the vested interests. So it can't really yeah. um, be opposed to those same interests on which it depends. So obviously, so yeah. if we just do that and go into states of exception, without changing anything else, then we're just sort of giving up what little democratic power we we have is my feeling. Yes. And so it's, it also feels like it's these, it's like you said, these, um, or it's a kind of closing down of options where we feel like, well, the hour is so late and things are so dire that, that there is only this option. And, and, and that's maybe also a result of this, this control um, mindset uh, where the options start to feel so very narrow when actually um, there's probably many, many more uh, potential ways forward than, than we imagine, but they can only really uh, arise if we, <laughs> if we are attentive to them and, uh, and, and allow them to, to arise. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Progressive movements as a whole, whether it be environmentalism, which I still consider myself, you know, I owe a huge mm -hmm. debt to environmentalism. I am an environmentalist. Mm -hmm. uh, and But it has, I think it made the mistakes I tried to talk about earlier. Yeah. Likewise, the left has, mm -hmm. you know, has been pushed into authoritarianism. It's there's no matter how compelling the cause and how just and imperative it is, it doesn't give you a monopoly on truth, you know. And, mm -hmm. and sometimes I think movements can get lost in their own world of critique. It's not about, you know, and, and they can get a little bit caught up it's into performing identities, performing critical yeah. identities, yeah. rather than engaging in the struggle that will be passed on to another generation shortly anyway. Yeah, and it's, 
I, I think that's interesting what you were saying there, because we do have definite authoritarian tendencies that we see where, where, where because it's the right thing to do, according yeah. to, to us, then it must be okay to be authoritarian about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's a, it's a struggle, isn't it? It's a real conundrum to sort of <laughs> find your way through because there's, there's dangers on all sides, you know, and there's no story we can tell about these dilemmas that don't have dangers attached. But yeah. I mean, part for me, it's just, it's a recognition and it's partly a react, you know, again, a reaction against a controlling imagination of the world that if, if the world is made of circles much more than straight lines mm. then it starts falling into place why something that starts out on one side you know science began against authority it became authoritarian environmentalism started against authority mm. it's become authoritarian <laughs> the Nazis, the nazis began as socialists and they ended up as uh, fascists mm. you know th 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 these are these circles are much more common than our straight line stories tell mm. us yeah. so whether whatever political persuasion we're from it shouldn't be surprising that if you follow a particular course down, you yeah. can turn into the very thing you started opposing. You know, I'm not saying mm. you know when that happens or mm. it will always happen, yeah. but that it does happen mm. should be... Some so, for instance, then, mm. you know, for me, progressive politics, caring for those who are less privileged, in, in terms of people who are privileged, caring mm. for less privileged, or people struggling to get equality, to get a, a recognition and the, the place in society that, that people deserve... Um, the, the most corrosive block to that is superiorism. The idea mm. that there is such a thing as superiority. Mm. You know, that comes out of, you know, it comes out of colonization. It's, you know, it's, it's the root of racism, the root of patriarchy, mm. the root of class, class injustice mm. is the notion there is such a thing as superiority and inferiority. Mm. And, you know, nowadays in the academic world, it's every, you know, the idea of excellence yeah. with the flip side being, well, you're not excellent. You know, it's, it, we, it's, it's absolutely sodden. It's a poison. It's a social poison. And so mm. for me, any, just because some movement thinks it's progressive, if it's starting yeah. to perform its own form of superiorism, then mm. it's basically become part of the problem. It's become part of the colonial kind of uh, hegemony the colonial formation that's that just because you started somewhere doesn't mean you can't end up somewhere else and so i think be very careful if you find yourself buying into any notion of superiority you can argue passionately mm. in a more humble way without claiming superiority you can say look what about this what about this yeah uh, you know it's not it's not a sign to somehow hold back on your cause mm. Yeah, and, and and that's why it's so, I mean, that's the tricky, the tough thing is that, that we have to take a, a look at ourselves and kind of ask ourselves, well, could it be that I am, in fact, not furthering the things that I think I am furthering? Could it be that the things that I am uh, doing with good intentions are having unintended consequences? And could I be also, um, how also the things that we can do? I mean, we see how environmentalism uh for example, has been captured by by corporate interests who who use it in their greenwashing, and I mean, I think that we're all vulnerable to that, and that's one of the things that capitalism is really good at is is taking the things that are, um, or it, not just capitalism. I mean, the, the things that the, that the powers that be, vested interests, are really good at is taking things that are a challenge and then subsuming them and integrating them to become to yes. become stronger. So I think it's something we definitely have to ask ourselves. But that makes yeah. me want to. Just, I just realized something that I did want to ask you about. What is it, you know, instead of this 
technocratic control, what is it that, um, what is a different way that we could try to relate to the world? Yeah, uh, well, you know, it sounds a very <laughs> momentous sort of thing to, uh, you know, <laughs> Just I, a I small know. question, know, a small question, and things off there. Yeah, it's going to be anticlimactic for sure. Yeah, summarize but, um, that. I mean, you know, what I, I think, and of course, this is a struggle, that, you know, I mean, going way back, it's a struggle of being around, probably, I mentioned Babylon earlier, I'm sure it's been around as long as that, people struggling to answer that question. Yeah. But I, so I don't know the exact answer, but I think, I, I, I like to think in terms of distinctions, they're not dichotomies, but things that are different, and just think, let's yeah. get a bunch of, not just one or two, but mm. a whole bunch of axes of difference. So, you know, I, I say, um, what I'm talking about is the difference between hope and fear. Mm. You know, hope is they're not symmetrical. It's not like mm. somehow to repudiate and try and control fear. Never fear. It's a bit of point. <laughs> let's get the let's get the balance. Let's get the balance right. Let's let's make sure we're spending as much time politically with hope as we are with fear, at least. Mm. Let's make sure we're spending as much time talking about values as about knowledge. Mm. Let's make sure we're talking about fairness as much as excellence. You know, let's make sure that we are affording as much respect to humility as to hubris you know don't think that getting your way means being bombastic and hubristic mm. it can often be as east a lot of you know as, mm. as Taoism to you know be yeah. humble and yeah. you can be it's amazing how compelling genuinely so I don't mean mm. uh, you know disingenuous um, and then care and control you know mm. recognize agency other agency in the world um, other kinds of agency don't just treat everything else as an object and think that somehow that's about being rational. Those are a set of distinctions, I think, somehow crudely, and, and they're not about never doing one of the things and always doing the other. They're just about look at balance, look at making sure the balance is right, because I think our culture has got the balance very, very wrong at the moment, uh, including the subculture I identify with, which is the progressive left and environmentalism is actually among the worst places. And uh, sometimes it's the right. I mean, I think it's really a problem that it has been the right that has reacted most strongly to global author the, the global technocracy that's been coming in in the last, the, the collapse of democracy since the Second World War, you know, it reached a peak. I mean, arguably this is the nature of wars. They engender solidarities and make possible democracy. And then, you know, it's a horrible paradox of progressive politics that war is mm. implicated in the conditions that mm. make for healthy democracy, as well as being the destroying democracy. But it's been the right in the recent years that's been the challenge to technocratic, hegemonic, authoritarian, global power structures. And they've done it in a really coordinated... These nationalists have coordinated between their nationalist uh, prejudices far better than the left with all its rhetoric of international solidarity. It's been the right who somehow overcome their nationalism in weird ways and undertaken this coordinated move around the world, which is extraordinary. And I, I think there's a lot to think about there because those some of the values that are behind that of solidarity, of, of you know being values-based, are things that the left really should have been the, the place where that was realised. And it's failed and it needs to reflect on that. I think it's very interesting because something that came up in a previous uh, discussion was kind of how, uh, you know, if you looked at when I was first uh, starting to be involved in, 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 in politics and activism, it was around the time of, um, 
still in the wake of like Seattle, these big, uh, these big anti uh, world trade meetings, uh, uh, yeah. protests that happened yeah, yeah. in Seattle in, in, um, in 99 or 2000. And um, it was a critique of global uh, globalization that wasn't about nationalism, but rather about um, so- solidarity and how uh, people need to have agency in their context in their communities and that that that's what real democracy is about and it's interesting maybe that has maybe the fear has come in there uh, on the left because the left is now maybe maybe so afraid because of all of these big challenges that we perceive that we're facing including climate change so we, so so people think that these top-down technocratic solutions are the only way even though they're they're not that great people think well this is the only way and also that the right like you said, has so so um, strongly defended uh, a lot of the, uh, the the sort of community and uh, community values that 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 otherwise would have been prominent on the left. So I think it's really interesting. I mean, the, the whole left-right divide is, is is sort of becoming not always so 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 useful. You need to look no, at no, well, what absolutely. are people what are people actually. What are people actually yeah. saying and what are the implications yeah. of the kind of things that they are um, proposing? That's yeah. very interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I agree. I mean, I mean, I'll give it to always been, it's always been a simplification to put things on one axis and what does yeah, it anyway mean? It means different things. But, uh, but I, I agree with you. I think, um, uh, and, you know, my point is yeah, it's not that it's the wrong values, mm-hmm. <laughs> but the right has been more disposed to defending values than the left mm-hmm. has in recent years. Well, yeah, left. and I also feel like not all not all the values. So, for example, uh, you know, the ones the ones that talk about uh, community and, and agency and your yeah, yeah. yeah, they're, they're not yeah, the wrong values so. necessarily, but often no, 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 they're in a bigger no. they're in a bigger context, which which have have values that I that I don't yeah. don't agree with. Yeah. But it's about a lot more yeah. Uh, messy. Yeah. But something to me I find empowering and uh, reassuring is looking back over the history of like, like where we are now, going back to environmentalism and, and you know, p- putting the world right, making putting it towards what you were describing as living well in the earth. And mm. um, what are the things now? I mean, when I, I'm, I'm 60 now, and mm-hmm. when I was, I grew up as a huge enthusiast for renewable energy in the 70s. I was mind blown by what was possible. and But then it was utterly ridiculous, you know, around the world, wherever you went, renewable energy, there were activists and movements who thought, yeah, this is what we're about. But they were almost, it was a badge of honour to be about something that's clearly so marginal, you know. Mm. Um, oh, it was ridiculed. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And likewise, um, the notion of, uh, of you know, ecological agriculture, of actually doing, mm. growing growing food without these inputs, of, of, you know, zero waste. Now, actually, although there's still a huge amount of politics and huge struggles still to play out, mm. In, in contemporary societies, who's won the argument? Look at nuclear power, which is and then was the you know the apotheosis. It was on these exponential curves. There was nothing to stop it. Look, it's it's not yet fully dead, but it's looking pretty much like mm. at least in the civil sector, it's it's been uh, rendered obsolete. And that was that's an amazing thing. So and it's happened through renewable energy uh, as as much as anything else. Mm. So for me. Just look at that history over my over my adult life. Mm. It's absolutely amazing what's happened. 
it was social movements, environmental movements, mm -hmm. social justice movements who said, we can do this. <laughs> Look, we're doing it. They were told it's, this is ridiculous. It's so marginal. Mm -hmm. And yet now those things that, that then were completely ridiculous and unthinkable mm -hmm. are in one way or another and not without problems. They're the mainstream. Yeah. And I think we should... I don't know why the environmental movement that's had that amazing history of success yeah. doesn't have more self-confidence, why it's panicking into this fear-based apocalyptic, we've got to get this done in you know X time or we're all it's all futile. I don't mm -hmm. know where that, the only people who should be panicking are the people on the other side of the argument who've been, been shown in public to be so wrong on this mm -hmm. issue after this issue after this issue. It's mm -hmm. a bit peculiar. It should be the environmentalists who are panicking. Yeah, and it's interesting because when you think about things where, um, well, where maybe, uh, you know, uh, environmentalists have been, have been uh, saying, well, these are, these are really uh, important issues or, yeah, this is, these are uh, real solutions that we can be doing. And, you know, one might find solace in thinking, well, you know, in the end, they'll see that we were right or something like that. But that never happens because what happens is that... <laughs> The sort of people who write the history books just incorporate it. The people who are formative and shaping the the, the stories, uh, yeah. the main stories inside you, just sort of incorporate it into um, <laughs> into their story, and then yeah. use it to to further their own aims. And and, and so it is. <laughs> it's, it's it's interesting. It's like you said, we have to remind ourselves that, and because it's it's kind of like being yes. gaslit. This this forgetfulness. Um, yes, of, exactly. of these things that have been just ignored. Uh, totally. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> That's yeah. a good reminder. Yeah, although, of course, you know, there's a danger of I told you so, and I was banging on earlier about being humble, and then I come up with this hubristic <laughs> account. <laughs> so life is full of ironies. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I think it's, a, it, it's a more a note to self, reminder to self. Yeah, yeah note to self. <laughs> Absolutely. There's few things more important than little notes for self yeah. regularly. As always, you'll find links to things we talked about in the show notes and on our website, forestofthought.com. An extended version of this episode is available for our community members at patreon.com slash forestofthought. Our wonderful theme music is by Christian Stan at stoneproduction.no. I'm glad to be back in conversation with you all, and until next time, take care. <laughs>